everybody, before we hop into this next episode, I believe this will be part three with uh, the legendary Chief Lampy. Uh, want to talk to you about your caffeine intake, be it cardomax.com. Use the promo code ones ready. They've got a bunch of caffeine to get you going. You can main, you know, right in the vein if you want. Not really. Straight you can't do that. Maybe. But you uh, should you not can't, do that. No, you should not do that. But, <laughs> uh, but. You know, it's all, they come in little packets and they've got hydration as well, uh, and immunity booster and that kind of stuff. But, um, on the go caffeine, you know, you can, you can take it straight, but, uh, you better have a chaser afterwards because it's going to get your mind right. But, yep. um, if anything, you just throw it in some water or throw it in some Sprite or something like that. If you really uh, are so inclined and, and you can get going, it tastes great. I, I throw it in almost. Not the caffeine one. I don't throw it in every everything I drink, but um, every time I get some water, I'm I'm either throwing in some hydration or some uh, some energy. So check them out, cardomax.com, promo code ones ready. And then, uh, what do you think about that Eberly stock, Aaron? I, I love it. I want to hit uh, Cardomax. They just came out with Max Clarity. Max Clarity is their take on a nootropic. So if you guys don't yeah. know what a nootropic is, it helps your your brain focus, right? So if you're actually just trying to support like brain health and stuff, check out Cardomax for that new uh, that new nootropic. That was the big thing that I wanted to put out there for Cardomax. Nice. So go check them out, man. Everly Stock. I cannot wait. So uh, you know there may be some uh, there may be some collabos on the future between us and the and the boys out at, uh, at boys and girls out at Everly Stock. So man, I love their entire line of technical gear. I I have some piece of uh, Everly sock clothing or some bag near me pretty much all times during my day, whether it's the Bando bag, whether it's one of the switchblades, they have bags that you can carry any weapon you want concealed. Uh, you, you know, they're made specifically for, you know, making sure that you have a, a functional bag that you can also have your second amendment rights, have that uh, right to bear arms. And you know, of course, legally for legal reasons, I'm telling you to do this, uh, in conjunction with your local laws and regulations. Um, but Everly stock is awesome, man. You know, their full line of all the way up to like, if you're trying to go out in, on a hunt in Alaska to just day to day, you know, wear and tear walking around any, any city of your choosing, man, they got everything for you in between. So from jackets to pants, to bags, to anything that you could possibly need training rocks, everything. So go check out Everlystock.com. Use the code. What we are. OR one zero. Yeah, OR10 over at Everly Stock. So go check them out. They're great Americans out of Boise, Idaho. And I said that one correct this time, so I don't get yelled at. But go check out everlystock.com. Use our code OR10 at checkout for a sweet discount. Anything that you need from walking around to a backcountry hike. So awesome times. Good, Bring good it. folks over there. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. And then uh, now enjoy this next episode with uh, Chief Mike Lampy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ones Ready Podcast. You're in the team room, and we are back for round three with the legendary Chief Lampy. Appreciate you joining us today, Chief. Uh, my pleasure, gentlemen. And uh, as we were speaking before we went to record, uh, I'll try to pick up where we left off on the last uh, session. And uh, I, I think I used the terms that uh, Colonel Beckwith uh, wanted eyes on target uh, on the desert uh, lake bed that the Intel folks had said was uh, suitable for C-130 uh, landing. Uh, so Coach Carney uh, was the chosen one, as I said previously. Uh, it's my understanding uh, they took him out of the Air Force uh, for this operation. Uh, so he was uh, 
uh, Joe Civilian uh, for this operation and tied tied in with the agency guys. And uh, and then they flew him in on a twin otter. Uh, he had a penetrometer and a small mini bike. Um, and so he went in there and planted uh, four uh, what I call beanbag lights that uh, the agency geek squad uh, had developed. And they had a little pop-up antennas on it, and they could be activated by this transmitter that was put on the, the uh, lead C-130 and could activate uh, those lights. I think, if I recall, when we were testing them down around Fort Stewart, about 10 miles out. So a good final approach. Uh, Coach uh, went ahead and did that op, uh, came back, and I think I had mentioned Mitch and I, Mitch Bryan, uh, actually were attached to B Squadron for um, uh, another option. And we uh, launched out of Fort Bragg, jumped into Yuma, and then we were doing uh, cross-country work, you know, from point A to point B see at night with the uh, bikes, M151s, mules, etc. And when we went to ground, uh, when daylight's coming up, uh, and I probably, and I'm sorry if I repeated myself, uh, once we started bedding down, we had this Huey helicopter flying in the area, in the general area where we had bedded down. And then uh, the Delta team leader, which I think was uh, Eldon Bargewell, uh, elected, okay, let's uh, step out and show ourselves and see what's going on. The Huey landed, um, the Delta guys went over and spoke that, and we, uh, he came, Bargewell, I think, came back with the Sergeant Major and <clears throat> said, we got to pack up and go back to Yuma Naval Air Station uh, and go back to Bragg. Didn't give any explanation why, what for, so we took the shortest route got to Yuma Naval Air Station and climbed on a 141, went back to Bragg, landed at Yellow, landed, went into Yellow Ramp. Of course, Mitch and I still had another five-hour drive back to Charleston, uh, so we hit the road. And when we got back, we got met with uh, Coach Carney. Coach Carney said, uh, looks like we're going to deploy overseas, and it's a good possibility <clears throat> this op is going to go. And and so he told, told the group, and I think it was myself, Mitch Bryan, John Korn, uh, Bud Gonzalez, uh, Dick West, and we were also taking Doug Coheat, Doug Phillips, and Bill Sink um, for which would have been the second night of airfield seizure. And so we were briefed to go home, get things squared away, tell your wives uh, you're going on a scuba uh, proficiency trip to Key Largo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Makes okay. sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Good cover. Listen, honey, don't worry about me. I'm just going to be in the keys a couple days <laughs> Yeah, in and out. Going to be eating some conch fritters down on Key Largo. Might go over to Boca Chica. No big deal. Yep. Have a pina colada or two. You name it. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we, we climb on the 141 comes in and, and this 141 uh, has uh, the uh, motorcycle uh, that you know Colonel Beckworth or Delta had promised that we would get a motorcycle for the op. So that was there. 
And I think we flew from Charleston to Rhine Mine, and then we had to offload our stuff in the motorcycle and hold out in the aerial port area with our motorcycle. And, you know, and of course, you know, all the airmen in there working or looking at us, you know, what the hell are you guys doing here? What are you dressed up for? You know, that's a nice looking motorcycle, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> great, great uh, cover, right? And then. And then we loaded on another 141, and we launched and ended up in Wadikini. Uh, and we were there, I want to say, a day or two. You know, we are bunked out in tents. And I think it was there, and it may have been Masura, but I think it was Wadikini, that the coach came back from a, a briefing or a meeting <clears throat> and told us that, you know, you know, everything's looking like it's a go, but instead of just running one runway where he had put the box in one end, we're actually going to do parallel ops. You know, we're, you know, and if you kind of look at the map of uh, uh, the Desert One area, um, you know, there was kind of a, I guess we'll just say a a road that ran through there it wasn't paved, but it was, uh, it was well used. And, and so on the other side, uh, of that road, you know, other words, the lake, the lake band or lake bed expanded. And the assumption was, well, if you can, the penetrometer and everything that you saw on the, what I call the South end of this, uh, uh, desert lake bed was suitable for C-130. Then the assumption was the north end across the road would be suitable. So now from all the rehearsals that we've done, you know, we never did parallel, you know, dirt runway strip landings, you know. And so now we're going through the uh, adjustments of who was going to do what, et cetera. And then I think we load up and we go to Masura. And again, we still don't necessarily have the, the green light, but we are positioning, uh, getting, you know, ramped up more and more. Um, and then we finally get the word when we're in Masura, it's a go. And yes, uh, we're going to do parallel ops. And then myself and JK and Bud Gonzalez had the responsibility of sorting out the northern portion of the lake bed and establish another box uh, and one uh, to run the parallel ops. And then we started uh, practicing. Now, Mitch and I had got training on the motorcycle, you know, when we were gearing up with uh, Hank, it was B Squadron going out to Yuma. <clears throat> but the other guys, you know, uh, JK, you know, Dick West, and then Rex Wallman joined us, um, hadn't had a chance to, you know, you know, ride the motorcycle. And so they started doing some training and, and Mitch and I refreshed ourselves at night, obviously. And during a lot of our rehearsals, we never had NVGs. And so this was the first time, I think, uh, for a lot of guys to start adjusting to the PVS fives. And, and so that's what we were doing in Missouri in the evening, obviously talking about the op and, and then it comes, uh, 
you know, get a message. Uh, President Carter approved uh, to go forward. Uh, Coach Carney uh, comes back from a briefing. And if you recall the incident I mentioned previously where Mitch and I kind of got bumped off the the one op to put more shooters on, well, that scenario came back up. Uh, and And so... I could see, you know, by the looks of Coach and J.K. and I are looking at each other. Hey, Coach, not necessarily looking like a happy camper. That Irish blood is flowing. <laughs> and, and and Coach looks at all and says, get, you know, get your stuff, you know, and you go over to that aircraft and you sit on that ramp and, you know, and you don't let anybody displace you or remove you from that aircraft. I'm going to take care of this. And there was a move afoot that that they wanted to bump a few of us off so they could put more what shooters on the aircraft. Yep. Uh, so the coach went back. I don't know what he said or what he did, but uh, in the end, uh, we didn't get bumped. And yep, we sat on the ramp until it was launch time. And and then during that time frame, right before we left, we didn't have interteam radios, so. Delta <clears throat> had brought over a, a box of MX MX 360s, which was the the radio, the, the shooters, the operators were used. And I think there was like eight or nine in there with spare parts. And and for me, and I guess for all of us, you know, we'd never worked with an MX 360, so we're looking at it. You know, like a pig looking at a wristwatch. Okay, let's figure out how this thing works. <laughs> you know, and what frequency, figuring out what frequency uh, the Delta guys are going to be on. So we're not, you know, interfering with each other. We got that sorted out and and then we launched. And this is, a lot of people probably don't know this. It may be in one of the books. It may be in Guts to Try. Coach may have covered it at No Room for Error. And then there's another uh, book that recently came out, uh, Phoenix Rising, by uh, Colonel uh, Keith Nightingale, who was part of General Vought's staff and and did a lot of horrendous work um, up at the Pentagon and going out to the different locations. It's a, it's a good read. Um, and we, as we're... As we launched and, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're going, I think they call it feet dry. You know, in other words, we're entering Iranian airspace. Um, and then we get hit by the Habu. Um, and I think we're flying at that time about 500 feet, you know, above ground. And, the, you know, you're in the Habu and it's, you know, it's like sandpaper. Like somebody's just, you know, rubbing sandpaper on the the skin of the aircraft. And as we entered, if I remember correctly, the, uh, something broke loose uh, outside the aircraft. And I think it was possibly the HF antenna. So now this thing is beaten on the side of the aircraft uh, as we're flying through the Habu. And I think it was the loadmasters, Taco Sanchez and Duke Wiley. If I remember, Jerry rigged something. They opened up the ramp and was able to hook this cable that was, you know, beaten on the side of the aircraft and brought that in and closed the tailgate, and we pressed on. Now, Coach and Mitch Bryan 
are up in the, you know, flight deck. And, you know, Coach had experienced this Habu uh, phenomena when he went in on the uh, Twin Otter with the agency pilots. And I think the primary pilot was uh, Bud, Bud McBroom, I think, had been flying in the Middle East. And, you know, they, they, you know, they're flying low and then boom. But the Habu's got a ceiling. And normally, I guess it's about 1,500 feet. And if I recall the briefing, radar coverage didn't start until 2,000 uh, feet and above. So Coach uh, told the, the MC crew, hey, just kind of climb up the 1,500 feet and you should get out of the boo. You'll you'll be above the cloud. And yeah, fact, simple. That's- Makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> well, just super easy. In the middle of a dust storm that you can't see your hand in front of your face with no HF antenna, the only thing you should have to do, you know, to avoid getting shot down by Iranian counter air is just be right underneath the radar, just about 1,500. Yeah, that's pretty simple. Yeah. I thought this, you know, Chief, I thought this was going to be an op that was, you know, tough or had some sort of barriers that you guys had to overcome. It sounds like it's going great. Yeah, it's a it's a piece of cake, you know. <laughs> Cakewalk. Yeah, this dive trip to Key Largo is turning out great for the boys. Yeah, exactly. I, I was looking for that pina colada, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so you know, we proceed on in, um, and and what it was is the first bird that we were on left an hour prior to all the other birds launching, you know, with Delta and the fuel, et cetera. Obviously, we were given an hour to go in, reassess things, establish what I'll call the northern runway, uh, make some adjustments to the the box of one, get the tack ant set up, um, all those things. Uh, so we're coming in, and I think we're, we're hitting final approach. So we're about 10 miles out. And, you know, things, as far as I know, I'm in the back on the the tail end of the aircraft. And the next thing we know, uh, instead of being on a final approach, all of a sudden, I think we're making a right-hand turn. We're we're going out. You know, we're doing a go-around. And what happened was, is there was a vehicle that, as they were coming in, they just uh, initiated the beanbag lights. And then all of a sudden, down coming down, I think, would have been from the western side <clears throat> where this road comes into the lake bed, you know, you know, some vehicles buzzing down there. So we had to do a go around. They shut off the lights, and, and then we come back around, do another approach. Well, now we're, what, 10, about 10 minutes behind schedule from where we we're supposed to land. So for us and what we had to do, the, you know, clock's ticking. We just lost 10 10 plus minutes. So in we go. We hit like a ton of shit, you know, but it was a firm landing, you know. And, oh, good. And if I recall, a little damage was done to the left uh, landing, you know, gear, the, the wheels, but nothing that would stop the. So, you know, the ramp goes down. We're getting ready to offload. And guess what? All of a sudden, here's a bus. There's a bus coming in, flashing lights, and, you know, don't hold me. I think he was honking his horn. What the hell are you doing out here in my space? And next thing I know, you know, either Ranger or Delta guy, you know, shot the tires. They seized the bus. Now, all of a sudden, we have 47, I think it was, Iranians on a bus 
in the middle of the, you know, the, the desert that this is supposed to be, what do you say, clandestine, covert op. Uh, and, and Chief, this is like not just in like, hey, it's it's just outside the city. This is like yeah, it's the, the geography of it. This is in the middle of nowhere. In nowhere. Yeah. And to come to find out, this was kind of the route that the, I don't know, taking shortcuts or smugglers or whatever the case may be. But it was, and so now, you know, Mitch, you know, or, you know, Mitch and coach, they, they go on up and set up the CP up uh, where the aircraft are going to be parked for refueling. Uh, Dick West, Rex Wallman, get the TAC in and get that position and up and running. They do some repositioning of the the box that the coach put in. And then myself and JK and Bud, uh, we've got to basically establish, you know, another box and one. And you got to imagine that there's no point of reference. A lot of times you're doing airfield seizures and you got an actual runway to use. And so once uh, Dick and Rex got their box kind of repositioned, <clears throat> we were able to take a compass heading off that corner light to determine where our corner light was on the other side so that, you know, they actually looked parallel. But as you can imagine, the Habu had went through a portion of this lake bed and, you know, we're trudging through, I don't know, three, four inches of, you know, sand or dust yep. and, and so the visibility was just dog doo doo. You know, you got the C one thirty engines running. So we're kind of creating our own habu, you know, with this, you know. And so what we had to do is just, you know, we, uh, we did kind of a leapfrog. You know, we took a ninety degree heading uh, from the 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 first light, and you know, you went as far as you could, and then you know we leapfrog another guy kept the heading. And finally, that's how we established the box one and and what we'll consider less than, you know, ideal conditions. And and then as we're doing that, the next action that happens, the the ranger blocking team and I think uh, Wade Ishimoto, uh, you know, out of Delta was leading this uh, ranger blocking. They had went up. up as far as they could on this road to set up a blocking position to prevent any more traffic if it happened to come up. So as they were getting established up uh, at their AO to set up spikes and all that, all of a sudden, here comes a fuel truck. You know, boom. And, you know, this thing ain't stopping. Excuse me for my poor English. And so they, so so they start lighting it up, you know, and things not, not stopping. The next thing I think one of the rangers pulled out a law, and shot, and all of a sudden, oh, you know, and so this almost, you know, the truck now is almost, you know, it's quite a ways out there, but it's on center line for our runway, and it just lights up the whole damn desert. So. Here we got a bus with flat tires, you know, at, <laughs> with 47 Iranians. And now we got a fuel truck burning on center line of the second runway. 
You got a C-130 kicking up moon dust, so it looks like you, there's a, an entire bomb going out. You can see this thing from the space. The tail. Yeah. yeah, there's 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 only three things that can be seen from space. This event, the <laughs> Chinese Great Wall, and the pyramids. You guys really know how to make an entrance. Yeah. But you got a point of reference now, though, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, right. that's, it. that's the benefit. Yeah, everybody call contact on the huge event in the middle of the desert in 47 Iranians. That's <laughs> And and so you know we went in you know okay that, you know you know let uh, Ish and his crew deal with the the burning thing and then <clears throat> I can't you know, recall who got assigned to take uh, babysit the forty seven Iranians and the bus to get get it out of the way <clears throat> and we went and pressed on uh, doing what we need to do identified uh, the location that we're going to put the inverted Y in to bring the helicopters in uh, after. You know, we landed the the started landing the C one thirties. So uh, again, we were able to make our timeline just by lickety split you know, because we lost so much time. And then the, the other thing, dealing with this soft stand versus what we had been dealing with with hard lake beds or hard surface runways, uh, delayed. Uh, you know, you know, pushed back our timing, but we, we got it done. Um, and then the, the birds started coming in. We got the, uh, the birds positioned, uh, properly. Um, and you know, the farp got rolled out. Now, something that we didn't know and, or we found out just before I think we departed Masura is there had been, we had been working with, uh, a certain amount of, uh, distance in the refueling from the tail of the 130 and the, the hoses I think were 50 foot increments and there was a decision you know to increase the pumping capacity <clears throat> was to take a 50 foot section out and and, and that really uh, crimped, uh, crimped what we had planned you know all of a sudden you lose 50 feet and you're trying to bring in a you know, RH-53, you know, now you're 50 feet closer to the C-130, uh, which is also creating its own taboo. Uh, right. Well, so, and this is a, the Chief, this is a uh, something, it's a nuance for some of our listeners. All right, everybody, I'm going to get really, really technical here. The 53 has a huge spinny choppy thing. And the C-130, <laughs> the skin on a C-130 ain't that thick. So when you put the spinny choppy thing attached to a huge engine 50 feet closer and you're refueling, now gas is flammable, okay? So you can see where we're starting to have a little bit of an issue. You can't see it's the C-130 is kicking up dust, the 53 is kicking up dust, and now you guys are getting 50 feet closer. What was what was the decision for the 50-foot move? Was it to save on hose weight, or what was the deal with making it 50 feet closer? To uh, increase uh, the uh, pump capacity. Uh, there were- oh, okay, yeah. Okay, sorry, I missed that earlier. Yeah, yeah. pump capacity. Well, and, and, goodness gracious. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, from their perspective, it was the right decision. You know, it would been nice to know from our decision, or, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. Yeah. Would have been a would have been a good heads up. Yeah. Oh, hey guys, we're fifty feet closer. We forgot to mention that. Oh, cool, 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 cool. Yep. Yeah. And, and and so you know, Mitch, John, and I, you know, adjusted as did uh, 
dip, boom. But you talked about a pucker factor bringing in that <clears throat> 53, you know, closer to the C-130, just be able to, you know, for the FARP team to hook in. Um, you know, it, you know, you're, 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 for lack of term, you're kind of saying your prayers a little bit. Oh, my God. You know, boom. Okay. Got it. Um, now, the uh, we put the once we got all the 130s on the ground, we put out the inverted Y. And as you probably, for your readings and stuff, <clears throat> the 53s ran into the same Haboo. And, you know, they, they were flying at 500 feet. And it's my understanding um, that they didn't have the same intel or didn't get the intel. The fact that they could have picked up out of the Habu and flown above the cloud on it. But, you know, they had to deal with that. And then during the flight, uh, they got separated, is my understanding. And they sat down. Um, and if I recall, we started out with eight uh, R-53 helicopters. And they sat down, and then, if I recall, one broke en route, and then one decided to return to the, the Nimitz. So that left six, and that six uh, 53s was the minimum <clears throat> that Delta needed, you know, to get to the hide site. Um, and then, obviously, they were late. And you know, I remember Bucky Burris coming down, you know, where uh, Bud and I were at the uh, inverted wide asking, you know, have you heard anything from the 53s? You know, because we're running out of, you know, darkness. You know, there was, you know, the timeline had been pushed so much that there wasn't a lot of wiggle room, you know, try to get everything covered under darkness. And I told Bucky, no, not yet. You know, hopefully, you know, something. And then I, you know, got a hold of Dick West. Hey, is attack and actually running? You know, because that was uh, <clears throat> a key uh, key thing for the 53s to hone in on. You know, everything was operational on our end, and uh, we. And then the next thing we know, the first 53 shows up. You know, in the inverted Y. And as you know, from your guys' experience, that 53's got 90 knots of downwash when it's coming in, and. and so you just kind of imagine, hey, we're trying to marshal him in, and by the time he's coming in, you know, we we can't see him, he can't see us. We just, you know, step aside, boom, he lands, you know, throttles down. And, you know, from the inverted Y up to where the refueling point is, is a fair distance. I, I can't recall what the distance was, but now you've got this soft sand uh, that's there that, you know, they kind of taxi like an aircraft, you know, in that nose wheel. And so they were kind of what I call hopping, you know, up to the refueling point. They weren't big, putting a smooth taxi down the runway or on the carrier deck. They were hopping like a bunny rabbit uh, to get there. So refueling, you know, uh, starts. The last helicopter comes into the Y. <clears throat> And this is the one that had um, some type of mechanical problem or hydraulic problem that the the pilot and the uh, you know flight lead for their, for the helicopter said can't fly it you know can't go so now 
uh, it's we're down to five helicopters. The, uh, the crew says this thing won't fly, so we can't can't take a chance to put you know uh, a portion of the Delta Force on to go to the hide site that may not make it the hide site, uh, etc. So now the decision comes down. Okay, <clears throat> you know, scrubbing the mission. We're, we're going to load up everybody. Uh, we're going to fly back. Uh, the helicopters will, you know, get topped off and fly back to the Nimitz, as I understand. And I think the, the broke helicopter they were going to pick up and put out far out in the desert. And I'm not sure what the decision was going to be, reference the 47 Iranians that you know, were still sitting on the bus as our, our guest. I always forget that these 47 Iranians are just sitting there. <laughs> like, just, they're out, in the I middle of the dark. In the middle of the dark. Like, imagine being a guy. That, like, I imagine, like, somebody here is completely and totally unaware of what's going on. He's like, I'm just trying to get to work, man. Like, I'm going to be late for my job. And I'm playing around with these Americans in the middle of this desert. Yep. Uh, and my understanding, there was one Iranian that spoke pretty good English. And he was... Uh, I bet a bit of a wise ass to whoever was at the uh, babysitting duties. Uh, and, and I'd heard that there was a discussion, and I can't, I don't know if it's true or not, that they were going to take the 47 Iranians and we we're going to fly them back to Masura with us, you know, and maybe do a hostage trade. I, and don't hold me to that. I just heard that. Uh, you know, and so we're doing the doing all the top off on the helicopters, and, and the one helicopter over there, uh, uh, Lewis's uh, bird, uh, he they they pretty much had no more fuel to to give this helicopter to top it off to go back to the Nimitz, <clears throat> and there was still still fuel on one of the other. Uh, 130s on the other side on the original LZ. Uh, so, you know, Mitch Bryan, uh, you know, gave that helicopter instructions to pick up and, you know, relocate uh, over uh, to the other side to the, you know, I can't remember which C-130 on that side had the fuel. Um, Hank Bud Gonzalez uh, was down, you know, kind of where the helicopter was going to pick up, you know, just as a point of reference. And as, you know, as you can imagine, uh, as soon as that helicopter picked up, you know, we're in brownout conditions. And uh, I can't speak for the air crew, but I, I'm assuming they lost, you know, spatial, you know, uh, acuity to where they were. In relation to the 130, they really didn't have a good point of reference as they were picking up. <clears throat> and, you know, the next thing was, is that helicopter crashed into that C-130 uh, and pretty much crashed, you know, sealed off, um, you know, the firewall where the 130. So that the, uh, the uh, MC, the crew up there really had no chance in hell um and then obviously the uh, the helicopter crew was in the same boat um you know when that that fireball uh, exploded um it 
sealed off, if I recall, it would have been, I think, the left side of the C-130. In other words, the you know, the, the flames, boom. So exiting out the, uh, the crew cargo door or that uh, paratroop door was a no-go. And, you know, when the crash took place, I think uh, the ability to lower the ramp also, uh, you know, uh, was taken out of the option. So you had the right paratroop door <coughs> left. And all you could see, you know, from my position was, you know, we had just loaded up, um, I think, 40 or 50 Delta operators on that that bird. And remember, it's got one of those 5,000, I think it was 5,000, you know, gallon, you know, blivets, you know, that was pretty much sucked dry, but you still had, you know, you know, some fuel, you know, it's like walking on, you know, a sponge for say. And you, you got to credit uh, the Delta guys, you know, for their discipline. Um, the the air crew, the load masters back there that were thinking. In other words, I think they initially lifted up the other uh, paratroop door, but immediately had to shut that down. Uh, obviously, the fire in there and. Uh, next thing you do is, you, you know, the Delta operators are just exiting, you know, boom, 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 boom. you know, jumping into the sand, rolling. <clears throat> and, you know, you know, thank God, you know, they all got out. And then I think one Delta operator went back and pulled out the radio operator that was up next to the firewall who had been, you know, severely burned and got him out. And... And the next thing, no, now we're, you know, going to a, a whole different plant. You know, we now have lost one C-130. Uh, we've lost a, a 53. We got a broke 53. Um, we got a bus full of Iranians. We got a fuel truck burning at the approach end. Um, and, and now, okay, you know, we're going to leave all the helicopters here we're just going to police up the crews and all the delta and the next thing we're doing and we the the rangers had already loaded up their gun jeeps on um you know certain aircraft next thing we're doing is we're offloading anything that wasn't tied down in the c-130 the gun jeeps were coming off the motorcycle you name it if it wasn't tied down you know you're trying to lessen the weight uh of the 130 uh, because there was no plan initially that you're going to bring, you know, take off out in the desert uh, with your whole force. And, and, and now you're down actually two C-130s because the second C-130 came in that offloaded uh, cargo nets and everything else <clears throat> had, we had launched it back out because it was going to be, I think, one of the leads for the next night. So it needed to get back. So now we're down two C-130s, and we've got all the helicopter crew to deal with, plus everybody that was brought in on all those 130s. And so you had to lighten, lighten the load. And, and then the DACO procedures, trying to figure out where everybody was. And, well, you know, and that, 
Well, I mean, we, myself and Dick West, uh, JK, uh, you know, we went everywhere we could on the desert floor um, to make sure that everybody was accounted for to the best of our ability. You know, we didn't have a, you know, list or, you know, how many Delta operators, air crews. We're just looking, is there anybody out here wandering around the desert, you know, you know, trying to figure out, you know, where to go next. And that, yeah, just, a, just a random Iranian, you know, walking around. I mean, because that happens apparently, just like buses. I, for, for the listeners, though, I like this is challenging. It, like if this if this happened right now, 2023, with the best MVGs that we have, the white phosphorus ones with with PAX manifests, you know, with lists of names of everybody on there with more powerful aircraft, uh, you know, better, better technology. This would be an incredible undertaking to actually make, um, you know, to fix the situation, right? Because there, there's already a bad situation. So all this kind of stuff. And you guys are still doing this under the cover of darkness with, by, by today's standards, really, really poor MVGs. No idea how many people there are. Less powerful aircraft. And now I mean, I, the, the, you guys must have, you know, for lack of better words, over the the 130s getting out of there just with so much weight oh, that was on yeah. there. And, you know, and then the, the last thing we had to do is, you know, yeah. got the, you know, word Coach Carney says, don't forget the beanbag lights because <clears throat> of agency <laughs> lights. And so, yeah. you know, I got to bring those back. You know, I, <laughs> okay, Coach, you know, and, yeah, Coach, can we can we focus up for just a second? Can I get a timeout? Like we're talking about the beanbag lights. The agency is going to be just fine without their beanbag lights. Can we just leave? Can we just yeah. go home? We got beanbag lights at home. Yeah. Coach. So, well, we launched and we dug up the beanbag lights and and you know got them. And, and coach, Perfect. Good. At least you got the beanbag yeah, lights. Coach obviously delivered the beanbag lights, and then. He ended up getting himself a steak dinner wearing one of the best steakhouses up in Deep. It was all good. Um, so, you know, we, we covered those. I mean, we lightened, you know, just not us, but, you know, Delta, the Loadmasters, you name it. Anything that we could get off the 130 that wasn't mission essential for flying that bird was left in the desert. And then we started the... Uh, uh, departure sequence um and like myself and myself dick west and rex wallman were on the bird that if you read in the guts to try uh i think coachman boom that jumped the the berm out there there was kind of a berm you know on this road you know through time you know and so as you said you know we, we stood there you know they're running the engines top max and then boom and of course we're kind of pushing sand uh and all of a sudden you know we're starting to yeah. feel good and all of a sudden boom and, you know and it's like holy shit and you know and of course rex and dick and i you know we're sitting there just kind of huddled and the next thing we get the word is don't move don't do anything you know the bird's still trying to get up but what happened was, is I think 
one of the Delta guys admit, you know, something happened with a grenade or, you know, something with uh, EOD stuff that they couldn't locate. And so all the word, as we're trying to get off the desert floor, they're telling us, don't, don't move. Just sit where you're at. Don't get up. Don't do anything. Uh, the other thing you can imagine, we're sitting on this bladder, you know, half, you know, pretty much empty bladder, but the fumes, now you can imagine the fumes inside the 130 was just horrendous. And, and so the 130 is, you know, continuing to go down the, the uh, lake bed. And, and, you know, I'm kind of looking at Dick West and, you know, Rex and saying, is this thing going to get up? You know, you know, are we going to get up? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, because it seemed, you know, seemed like forever, you know, we were just going after jumping, jumping, boom. And then, you know, you could just kind of feel the, uh, probably the pilots starting to pull the yoke back, you know, and the, the 130 was just groaning. It, I call it a groan. Um, I mean, they they had everything. They were doing everything they could to, you know, get that at 130. And I'm, I'm sure that was the case for all of them that had all the folks. And, you know, my hat goes, you know, I tip my hat to the air crews. They did a hell of a job hell of a job flying in flying out and finally you know we lifted up and it just seemed like forever that took us to gain altitude but at least we're off the ground (laughs) yeah Yeah. because it's it's been working out so well on the ground for you up until this point you know why not try something else why not spice it up with a little altitude (laughs) But still, with missing explosives and uh, Dude, fuel fumes. This is the craziest thing. And, and peaches, you crush the wings it, could man. snap off at any moment. Yeah, yeah, you, like, it's you, fine. you crush it. Like today, with great weather, with every piece of technological advance that we have, with the best planning, this mission would be a Herculean effort, to say the least. And you guys are making magic out of lunch meat in the middle of a sandstorm with forty-seven random irradians. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a band. It's gonna be an emo band, and I'm calling it forty-seven irradians. <laughs> It's going to be great. And and so, you know, we uh, finally left up. We gained altitude. And, and, you know, like I mentioned, the fumes and and what the loadmasters did start popping the hatches. You know, the hatches up above the 130 where you'd crawl out, you know, to just, you know, you know, help get the fumes out. And finally, we get back to Masura. You know, we offload. Um, it's a bit, you know, for lack of term, chaotic, uh, because we're still going through DACO procedures and I didn't know how many, and you know, how many air crew had been lost and we left in the desert and, um, you know, so everybody's, you know, counting heads, uh, figuring, and then we're offloading, uh, uh, the, uh, the radio operator who had been severely burned. Um, and I think there was a couple other Delta guys that got slightly burned as they were exiting. If I recall correctly, don't hold me that. And they had uh, the one forty ones waiting for Delta and obviously the, the, uh, injured. And, and, and so as Delta did their Daco, they pretty much transloaded from the one thirties pretty much, I think onto the one forty ones, if I recall correctly. And, you know, once they, they launched and, uh, and 
then we're left there with the uh, 130 and the maintenance crews. Um, and I can't recall, you know, we, we were there for a couple more days uh, before, you know, we actually got, got our ride home. Uh, it's also uh, the time there that the Brits, you know, because the base we we're operating out, the Brits, you know, pretty much ran. And that's when, you know, that's where the uh, title of Colonel Kyle's book gets to try. The Brits brought over a couple cases of beer written on a piece of cardboard, you know, you know, you know, thanks for having the guts to try. And that's. Man, that's that's respect right there. That's uh, the the kids would say, Chief Lampy, that real recognize real, and that's uh, that's one of those moments where, you know, you have to. They had to be in awe. Like, just listen to the story. I, I don't know how I would do that. I don't know how I would you know do that that sort of thing. So that's that's a fantastic piece of history that I don't think people were connecting. That's that's amazing. Yeah, it is. So eventually, yeah, when we got home, <laughs> got back to got back to Charleston and. And the first words your wife was like, "How was that dive trip? How was Key Largo?" Yeah. Now this is the uh, the other interesting part of the story. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Dick West. Now, obviously, he he told Kuma, which is his wife's name, <clears throat> that you know he's going on a dive trip, just like I told three. You know, we, you know, hey, we're we're going down, getting a little sun, blow a little bubbles, you know, and but he. He'd written the letter and left the letter for, you know, because he obviously kind of realized that, you know, we're, we're out on the ragged edge. So he wrote a letter and thanked her. and da-da. So she kind of had a heads up. But once the incident took place, now Pete Holt, uh, who was back at Charleston, uh, he drives over to my house, I think uh, Bill Sink's house, uh, jk's house we all live lived down charleston at the time and he's knocking on the door there you know i think we lived at 1300 hitchcock lane or whatever there charleston and and you know this is like i don't know six in the morning Teresa's up you know got the two-year-old trace and then travis who, who had been born christmas day you know just when we got back from one of the rehearsals where she's feeding him and you know she's looking at pete holt and he and Pete say he's okay. There's nothing to worry about. You know they're all right. Uh, and she's looking at him. She's, what are you talking about? He's in Kilo. Oh my god! <laughs> the alcohol poisoning incident or what happened? Yeah. No, <laughs> Come on, my dude. You're just snitching for no good reason. You're supposed to be a special <laughs> operator. Keep it tight. <laughs> Tighten it up. And, and so the next thing I guess Teresa knows, and Bill Sink's wife shows up. You know. Kuma West shows up, uh, and and Pete saying, "You're not watching the news, you know, you know, you know I got two damn kids to take care of. I'm <laughs> I'm task saturated. <laughs> CNN, you kidding me? Uh, so they turn on the news, and then of course it's all over the news, and and I don't know, it was 12 hours, 18 hours later, I show up home, you know, just look." Dust, dirt, grime, and and Teresa's like Key Largo, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're always smarter than yeah. us. 
Yes, they are. <laughs> They're always smarter than us, you <laughs> idiot. <laughs> and, and and so we get back and you know we're cleaning up and then Coach Carney gets a call and he you know and he get he launches up to um, uh, camp. I can't remember the name of the camp. The agency uses it, still uses it. Um, and he goes up and joins up with a fair amount of the Delta operators and President Carter comes in. And, you know, coach, coach would have to tell the story. But, you know, you know, President Carter makes the rounds, thanks, to, you know, everybody that's there, shakes their hand, <clears throat> boom. And then, you know, coach comes back and it gets back. And we're immediately getting ready to start practicing the, the second iteration. It's called, um, what was the name of the product? This honey badger. Um, so, I mean, we, you know, we hadn't had much time back on the ground. It may have been more than it seems, but it was just like lickety split. Next thing I know, I'm out in White Sands, New Mexico, you know, attached to Charlie Company, Captain Grange, the Rangers, and, you know, along with a lot of other, you know, the, the guys, you know, uh, John Corrin, Dick West, Johnny Pantages, but, you know, and, and we brought up some guys from Herbert to, you know, start rehearsing the next evolution. And uh, and that went on for, you know, some time until they, you know, kind of put a stop to thing. During this time frame, uh, they held the hallway commission. If you got gentlemen recall or read the history and hallway looked in to what the hell went wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the findings of the hallway commission, you know, made, you know, certain recommendations and coach Carney and Mitch Bryan uh, went up and testified, um, you know, at the hallway commission, uh, you know, hallway commission made their decisions. What came out of that to, to just get cut to the chase was the formation of JSOC that they determined, you know, you had to have a joint command that, you know, work together, train together, you know, we're actually a team versus how we came together to do, <clears throat> you know, Eagle Claw. And, and then this is where, uh, just for the listeners out there as well, like this is where the soft truths came from, everybody. So you cannot, you know, you cannot mass produce special operations forces. Special operations forces require lots of uh, dedicated support in order for them to work. You cannot make a special operations force after an event. That's what came out of the Holloway com Commission is really we started talking about the soft truths and having unity of command and having JSOC and having these units. So um, for those for those that want to read into the history, and I urge you to do so, go look at the Holloway Commission. You can read their report. It comes up on whatever search engine you want to use, um, and you can look. There's been a lot of papers on it. Special Operations Review um, Review Group has a great piece on it. You can go over there and read it. So check it out. Sorry, no, sorry, Chief. I just wanted hey, to put that out there. This is your podcast, guys. You, you jump in anytime, guide. Not today, it ain't. <laughs> <laughs> We lost this podcast a long time ago. Whenever right we after have we, guys, yeah. whenever we have guys like you, J.K. Wade yeah. Norad, yeah. Uh, we're working on Coach Carney right now. Like it is no longer ours. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. Coach Carney called me to, to validate you guys. You know, ah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, who are these oh, knuckleheads? No. 
Who are these idiots? Well, he, call, he called me. I, I get some random Tampa number, right? Because I don't have his number, right? I get some random call, and I'm 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 heading out to the range to control some casts, and I'm I'm on a, a razor, and I could barely hear. And I'm like, "Who?" And he's like, "Hey, it's Coach Cardi." I was like, "Oh, hey, uh, <laughs> I gotta take this." Yeah, everybody. exactly. I was like, and, and, and I was total fanboy because like the 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 guy next to me, he's like, "What? Who was that?" I'm like, "Dude, that was Coach Cardi that just called me, man. Like he called me." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so he called. He called. He said, "Hey, Chief. Hey, Mike. Says you know some guy named Peach or Peach." You know? <laughs> I said, "Yeah, yeah." He says, "Well, you know, podcast. You know, they got a guy, Aaron. You know, PJ." Oh yeah. no, I can't. Oh man. Oh, man. this is this is the most anxiety that I've yeah. ever had in my entire life. Why does Coach Kearney know my name? That's not a good thing. <laughs> That's never a good thing. That's never a good thing. Holy so he, crap. He says, are they with Jet? Are they for real? You know? I said, yeah, coach. You know, they're good. They're solid. You know? So I do a podcast. Yeah, coach. I all the story. <laughs> you know, get on there and, you know, just be be, be the, the coach that uh, we love. And, and I tell you, Coach Carney's a great guy. He was a great leader. Still is. Um and if you look at, you know, what he did, and we can talk about him, you know, uh, later on, but one for Coach Carney, where we are today in special tactics, we wouldn't be. He, he was the right guy at the right time. He could walk the talk. Uh, he had charisma. He immediately gained respect of the the, the senior officers that we were dealing with. And you got to remember, Coach Carney was a major. And you got all these grumpy, you know, 06, not, not grumpy, but, you know, they're, they, yeah, I call oh, them crusty. Um, but, you know, they, they didn't take no shit, you know. And, uh, you know, and Coach Carney walked in and he didn't take no shit, you know, even though he was a major, uh, he, he walked in and, uh, he he gained their respect very quickly, um, and I remember something, and, and I think this was out in Yuma when we were first doing blivet drops, and and uh, Charge and Charlie Beckworth was out there, and I was earshot of their conversation, and you know Beckworth said, you know, you know, I think he said John, you know John, I I just don't know what cut of cloth or what boat of cloth. Uh, your guys are from and and i could see the the you know the coach but for me as one of the coaches you know guys or you know the the guys that got to go out and execute that that was fighting words to me that was a that was a challenge or a charge for me that you know we were going to prove that we're as, as good as any of the delta operators or any of the rangers we just needed to be given the opportunity. And that's why, like I mentioned before, we just tell coach, coach, just get us on the playing field. Just get us in the game, you know, and we'll do the rest. Trust me. We won't let you down. And the coach did that. And uh, uh, if it wasn't for the coach, you know, for my career, you know, hey, I was heading to Germany. And, you know, the coach stepped in. And pulled me into Brand X. Um, 
And, you know, the rest is history. And we'll talk about that, you know, probably uh, as we continue uh, with these podcasts. But if it weren't for Coach doing that, I probably wouldn't have all these opportunities to do what I, you know, was, you know, got to do or meet the guys or, you know, uh, be teammates uh, in a lot of these operations. Uh, but back to Coach coming back, we we did, you know, all this honey badger, different uh, scenarios. One of the biggest uh, rehearsals on honey badger was a dual runway uh, takedown of Reese Air Force Base, I think it was. <clears throat> and we had tons. I mean, we had 130s up to Yang Yang, 141s, C5s. Um, and, of course, the C5s and the 141s obviously are offloading besides the Rangers. You got Blackhawks. You got Little Birds. It was like, you know, for lack of a uh, term, Atlanta International Airport. Uh, at that, I mean, you just had Little Birds flying this way, Blackhawks going this way, 130s landing here, 140s landings here. And it, you know, you talk about uh, a hell of an airfield air operation that, uh, you know, we pulled off the air crew, obviously everybody, <clears throat> but we really showed what we were capable of uh, in that reference, having all that many aircraft going all kinds of different, uh, et cetera. It was, it was quite the, uh, quite the success. And I think it was tied to that they were looking at, one of the options of seizing, you know, Tehran International Airport. Not necessarily, you know, uh, ideal, yes. but uh, that was uh, one of the options to, if we're going to go back in and try to, you know, rescue the hostages or locate. Except eventually that came, you know, started to taper down, obviously, uh, you know, uh, elections had taken place. Reagan had been elected as a president. Uh, you know, all those things were taking place. You can read that in the history book. <clears throat> and and then Coach Carney uh, had got called up to Washington D.C. and then I think the headquarters Mac. Uh, and this had to be, I want to say September eighty. Uh, again, don't hold me to this. And he comes back. And uh, he pulls, you know, the guys together. Now, Mitch Bryan, J.K., and Bud had already left. They had applied for officer training candidate school and been selected. So those those three had left. You know, they were, you know, core, part of the core at Brand X. But what was left is, you know, Pete Holt and Davey Wilson, myself, uh, Dick West, Johnny Pantages, uh had uh, come in, I think, from 22nd Air Force. Uh, we also picked up uh, Nick Corelli, Chief Corelli, out of 7th SOS, uh, Rick Cafe, uh, Doug Phillips uh, was there, Doug Coheat, uh, you know, I think was in that group. And then Coach, you know, pulls us all together and uh, says, well, you know, I got some good news and I got some bad news. This is never good. It's always bad news. It's always, I, I got some bad news and I got some worse news is usually how that yeah. should go. And, and so, you know, we're all kind of sitting there or standing there looking at the coach. Okay, coach, you know, let's go. You know, we're ready. We're big boys. We got thick skin. 
Um, and he said, well, the good news is we're going to form our own unit. It's going to be separate from any combat control, um, you know, team, stateside or, you know, overseas. It's not going to be part of any numbered air force uh, per se. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'll be working, you know, pretty much directly, you know, for uh, a two-star general. And not that his performance report wouldn't be written by, you know, an Air Force, you know, colonel or above because he's still a major. Um, so, Chief, I, I just want to ask, were, were there rumors that this was coming down the pike? Because you guys were involved in the congressional hearings. You guys were obviously plugged in. Did you did you was the word in the team room kind of like, hey, it's moving towards this thing. We might have our own force. Or did this come as a surprise? It came to as a surprise to, to us. Coach, wow. Coach okay. made boom, but he didn't, you know, coach kind of holds his cards close until actually everything has solidified. You know, he didn't. Yeah. Boom. So he, he may have been a, much more aware of it, but, you know, all of us, you know, we're scattered to the four winds and, you know, doing what we sure. had to do. So it was uh, going on those, going on those extra dive yeah, trips. Y'all yeah. love so much. Largo, the peanut you got it. Yeah. <laughs> Pina colada. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Not a lot has changed. We, we drink margaritas these days, but dive trips pretty much pretty, pretty standard. Um, and so, <clears throat> okay. And he says, that's the good news. And, and I said, and I popped up and I said, well, coach, what about the bad news? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, right. the unit's going to be stood up at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Vietnam. And, uh, you know, not a necessarily, uh, it's not Charleston, South Carolina. It's not Charleston Air Force Base, but that's, you know, that's where we need to be. If we're going to be part of the MISH, we need to be co-located uh, yep. with the, the command, but, you know, with Delta. So he said, uh, I'll let you guys think about it and see who'd like to, you know, make that move. Yeah, because I mean, Fayetteville's kind of nice, right? Almost stop like Charleston. It. Trenton, or, stop it. Listen, I knew you were going to do it, and I, I that is enough. We all know that joint is spelled A R M Y, and that's the only reason that they had to go to Fort Bragg. Now, you stop it. It is not as nice as Charleston. Sorry, Chief, I got Trent. I'm sorry for letting him interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so out of that group, you know. You know, obviously, uh, you know, Chief Corelli, uh said he would go. Rick Cafe wasn't necessarily happy camper. Um, you know, he'd left Europe to come to Charleston and be part of, you know, for lack of term. But, you know, Rick said, okay, I'll go. Uh, Dick West, Johnny Pantages uh, said they'd go. And, you know, I said I'd go. Um, uh, John, John Pagini was in this mix too, as well. PJ John Pagini was there at the somewhere uh, at the beginning. He came after Grenada. Now we'll get to okay. Say okay. He came in in '84. This is okay because uh, we didn't have any PJs at that time. And, but you know, John right. John Pagini was uh, very helpful to us, and it's a, another when we got settled. And this is kind of just a sidelight. Um, and when we were doing, you know so much airfield seizures, you know, we're dealing with a lot of 
injuries. And uh, and John Beguini was up uh, at Mac staff or 23rd staff as a senior PJ. And I think it was Rick Cafe that, you know, when we got settled, you know, worked with John uh, to get his slots to the medical piece of the pararescue training. And so we sent, I think, six six or eight guys, you know, John McReynolds, uh, Jerry Bennett, uh, Greg Capps, uh, Rick Cafe, D.I. Brown, John Bringoff, uh, that I recall that we all sent out, uh, boom. And, and so as we developed, uh, you know, each of those guys that went carried a, a, a real small medical kit which really came in handy in Grenada <clears throat> because the Rangers, uh, you know, medical team was pretty much overwhelmed with that, but that's mm-hmm. right I'm ahead of myself yeah. in that. So, uh, <laughs> so that was the, the initial crew that left out of Charleston. Now Doug Coheat and Doug Phillips, uh, also, uh, were volunteers to, to go up there. Uh, but you know, assignment wise or, you know, the bureaucracy also, uh, Jeff Buckmelter, Lieutenant Buckmelter. Uh, and we had Lieutenant Bob Steffen and coach wanted to bring Jeff Buckmelter, but general Cassidy, uh, said Jeff was still too young as a young officer, even though he had been enlisted, uh, combat controller PO3, PO3 4. Uh, General Cassidy just felt that uh, coach needed to take a more senior uh, officer with him to be his deputy. And uh, coach uh, chose Craig Brochi out of the McCord team to be his second officer. You know, an interesting sidelight to Jeff Buckmelter. You know, I met Jeff Buckmelter when he was, I guess we're both E4s together. Uh, and I come back from Laos in, in seven, January 73 and we had that jump fest that was going on POW MIA jump fest, I think April, May. And that's when I first met Jeff. You know, of course they didn't have rent a cars, um, back then. So I ended up, uh, you know, driving, uh, Jeff and, uh, a guy named Stu Pressy that ended up being assigned over in uh, Thailand with us. And that's the first time, you know, I met Jeff, you know, and we, you know, we hit it off. He's, he's a solid man damn good you know he was solid operator and really was a hell of a damn good officer and as you probably know he's now the jeopardy j3 at us socom and has been there for some time and i think he's getting ready to start on his uh 14th j3 um and he's a hell of an anchor point um uh within us socom uh but another sidelight on that, and I know, you know, kind of wandering a little bit, but, you know, I was driving, uh, you know, Jeff uh, and Stu pressing around in, in a car I bought from Wayne Norat, a 1970 AMX, you know, muscle car. <laughs> and, nice. you know, there's no back seats, you know, so, you know, you know Jeff and Stu are flipping who's going to go lay in the back where there is no back seat and that car. <laughs> and and side light and, and you guys interviewed Wayne, but Wayne had that car at, at 
Kiesler. And of course, we went to air traffic control school together. He was a few classes ahead, <clears throat> just like jump school. And, you know, we ended up linking up there. We played on the flag football team together, you know. Um, but, you know, when Dale, his wife, was pregnant with her third son, he he said, you know, and Wayne was our transportation yeah, at Kiesler. We didn't have a phone. And he said, well, I, you know, I, I got to get a different car with a backseat, et cetera. And, and so, you know, I liked uh, Wayne's car. And I said, how much, you know? Uh, uh, 1500 bucks, you know? So, you know, I've been saving, I didn't put my money in the credit union. So, you know, I had my little sock, so, you know, pulled out. <laughs> yeah, sock money. Yeah. You got that. That's, that's what they call a little walking yeah. around money. I'll see yeah. myself it's, out. Yeah. You know, I paid Wayne $1,500, you know, and change the uh, transfer and, uh, title and, you know, and I let him use it until, you know, he left. And so he's packing out uh, at Kiesler. Like I said, he was a few weeks ahead of me. <clears throat> and so he's throwing, you know, digging through his drawers and he throws this old pair of socks in the, in the trash can. And, you know, it, boom. I said, what the hell was that? And so I go over and, you know, I big pull out this sock he just threw in the trash can. And I open it up. It's the 1500 bucks I gave him for the car. And, and, and I said, Wayne, you know, you want this sock? Nah, nah, it's a piece of shit. You know, and they, you know boom. And I said, you want to look at it again? <laughs> You're a better friend than I am. I would have kept that money. I said, Wayne. I, yeah, I would have said a thing. I'd be like, man, I can't believe you threw away this sock. <laughs> uh, and I still laugh about it. Now, the ironic thing is, guys, I still have that car. Yeah, no way. 1970 AMX. They only made like 18, 20,000 of those. Still, still runs great. Still goes like a bat out of hell. Uh, and it's worth a lot more than 1500 bucks today. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's, that's what we call an investment. Now, this is a, ca- this is a cautionary tale to everybody out there because right now there's a bunch of people listening that are going, oh, wait. So you mean I can buy that Dodge Charger muscle car for 29% interest and it's going to be worth something later in life? Guys, Chief Lampy's experience, your experience may vary, okay? So let's just, Mucho, take it easy. Let's figure out how it is that we can have some better investments. Chief Lampy won. You you probably are not going to win with your Dodge Charger <laughs> muscle car. So kind of an ironic thing, you know, that I kept it for so long that Wayne was throwing the money away that I had given him. But um, again, sorry, I got off on a tangent, Um, but it it just kind of popped up in my head when we're talking about Wayne and and Jeff Buckmelter. And then when, you know, Jeff showed up uh, as a butterball lieutenant at Charleston, it was great to see him. And then later on, uh, he came up uh, to Debt One Makos and uh, I ended up being his senior NCO and he was the, you know, you know, officer charge. And then uh, Wayne uh, came in on the tail end of the original 16. And uh, so Craig Brochi. So th- we had two teams at that time. Um, and how long have we been going here? How long have we been going? I, it feels like, a, feels like yeah. a couple seconds. <laughs> 
We are at one hour and okay. 12 minutes. Uh, I hate to break it off, but I've got another commitment here uh, that I got to get going. What a power move. What a power move. Chief Lampy. I, hey, this on. is, I told you, this is your podcast. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, nice. so hopefully I, I covered, uh, you know, no, but we'll talk about the formation of debt. One Mako's uh, next time, <clears throat> kind of what uh, we went through the life in the trailer, acquiring most of our furniture and vehicles through DM- DMRO. Uh, uh, acquiring. Yeah. Classic, classic, classic ST move. I guess nobody's, uh, if, if somebody is not protecting it, that is open. It that is ours. open game. Yeah. Hey, boy, that couch yeah. does look nice. Yeah, it, it served well. You know, <laughs> and Steve, Steve really did a, you know, hell of a job acquiring stuff at DMRO because we really didn't have a budget at that time. You know, we, we were a unit. Yes. That one makers and, uh, Coach Carney and uh, Chief Corelli were the first two to go up, and Chief Corelli <clears throat> had the heavy lifting, uh, getting the trailer, the um, uh, first trailer, getting uh, getting the furniture, uh, acquire you know vehicle transportation for us, you know two six packs, beating up six packs out of DMRO, but they ran, you know they got us from point A to point B. Um, and uh, and the other thing is he, he did is, you know, the, the first manpower document for, you know, we had five support people, uh, which was, you know, phenomenal. You know, this is like a kid in a candy store because, you know, back in our day, we didn't have any support people. You know, we, we packed our own parachutes. We maintained our own radios, you know, everything we did. You know, you may have had an admin clerk, and if you're lucky, you might have had a training person to help out boom but he got uh admin guy john rivers uh supply person was her name first name was brenda don't recall her last name uh the maintenance shop we got two maintenance guys don whitman and a guy named chuck freeman who was actually a combat controller at charleston the maintenance shop that volunteered to come up to be uh the uh, second 304 <clears throat> and then we picked up a uh, uh guy uh, steve miller uh that uh, was parachute rigger down at pope and that was our five uh support folks that uh helped stand up the unit okay gentlemen well chief i think i think that that proves right there how important oh. support is to uh the oh, soft I, mission but I, I, I know you i know you got a bounce chief oh, yeah. so um we'll i'll coordinate with you and get get part four scheduled but we definitely appreciate yeah, your well, time. Yeah, thank you, Chief. <laughs> you know, I can't speak enough to <clears throat> reference the support folks, you know, because they really became a godsend. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, they, they are. still are. And Facts. We, I named them. Um, you know, I think I uh, had a guy named Rick Rouse that ran the maintenance shop, you know, came up, you know, called them combat generators, you know, as the, the, uh, as the unit. And I think the thing that really, really hit home to me, and again, I'm ahead of myself, was uh, <clears throat> the jump into Grenada. And as you're probably aware of, uh, we, you know, it was a 500 foot jump uh, into Grenada. And 
uh, Colonel Taylor was, uh, you know, I was assigned to the first uh, 75th bat for that jump. And, you know, Colonel Taylor had decided that really didn't need reserves, you know, 500 feet. You know, uh, you guys know that, you know, I'm preaching, preaching to the choir. You know, it takes about 200 feet for your parachute to elongate and open up. And if you're lucky, you've got a good, you know, stable exit and you're not spun up to the risers up to your neck. And so you, by the time you open up and, you know, we're jumping T10, so you, you don't really have much, if any, steerability. And, and so if you're lucky, you get maybe two, maybe three oscillations underneath your parachute. And if you're lucky. You get Maybe. your, uh, um, you know, your rucksack released before you become part of Mother Earth, and and as as we're coming in, and this, you know, we'll talk about Grenada, but uh, I think I was the number two or number three guy in the door, and, and of course the triple uh, A sites that they had set up were high enough that they couldn't lower to where the C one thirty, so you could see the tracer rounds out the door coming over the top. And so we're going through, you know, the 10 minute, six minute, you know, you know, one minute, check your equipment, boom. And the next thing I know, I'm checking my equipment, but I don't have a reserve. And there, there, that, that, you know, you, know you, you want to talk shock and off for lack of term, you know, all of a sudden you, you, you didn't think about it when you're suiting up and whatever, but now you're getting ready to jump out an airplane and something that you're so used to, having in front of you you don't have and so i always used to say a prayer but this time i modified my prayer i said lord you know, I, I sure hope that the the rigger he or she that packed this parachute my main parachute followed the to to the nth degree uh and it opens as uh you know prescribed or whatever i said yeah and that's <laughs> talk about you know you know, really counting on someone that you never know, you never meet, but you're depending on what they did for you to press on and do your mission. And I think that's a good plan. Leave it. Yep. Chief, thanks okay. again for your time. Um, Chief. Everybody out there, don't forget to like and subscribe, and okay. we'll see you next Look, time. Next time. Later. Guys, take care and have a great April Fool's Day, huh? Thank you, yeah, you too, Steve.